Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. one of our values is you can't do life alone. It's how you and I were created by God to do life with other people and reflect His goodness to all things around us. And so at CBC, we have community groups. Community groups are designed to where we can meet people, get to know people, and push each other to follow Jesus each and every day. So if you join a community group, you'll gather with people once a week or once a month or every other week, depending on your needs and what your group wants. And you'll study the Bible together and you'll worship together and you'll pray for one another and hopefully you'll eat really good food together and you'll hang out and follow Jesus. Because so often where we see growth in the spiritual life is in the day to day. And so we have community groups for all different life stages, for young people with young kids and older people with older kids, or maybe kids that have gone away and everything in between. And they meet on Sundays and Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays. They meet at night and sometimes they meet during the day. And you can find what group works well for you. Because at CBC, we believe you can't do life alone. And we want to provide you with people that will push you to look more like Jesus each and every day. So down below, you'll see a list of our community groups and you can reach out to leaders or just email us if you have any questions about what they look like and if you have any questions about how to get plugged in with your community group so that you can follow Jesus with us at CBC. Well, welcome everybody today. It's Small Group Sunday, and all these videos we're going to show throughout the day are going to go on our website, so when I say things like, look down below, I'm not just saying, look at me some more, okay? I'm a middle child, but I'm not that vain anymore, because I've been in a small group for a while. See that? Um... What we're going to do today, though, it's going to be a little different. Normally, Small Group Sunday, we have tables set out throughout our worship space, and there's balloons, and there's donuts, because if it's for the gospel, bribery is okay, everybody, and we say join a group and eat more unhealthy food, because calories don't count if you're in community following Jesus. So much bad teaching already, we're 30 seconds in. Uh, But really, today it's going to be a little bit different. But before we get into that, there's this verse in Luke that resonates with me. It's Jesus, and he says, the disciple is not above his teacher but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Today is small group Sunday at CBC, and here's why we value small groups, because Jesus did. So often in scripture, we have to fight our natural inclination to move past the why and go straight to the what. But what Jesus does when he talks about what it means to be a disciple and to follow him is he comes to a time and place when he said, I'm going to train my people to be like me. I'm going to start my movement of reconciliation called the church. I'm going to start it with 12 people that society looked over and looked past. I'm going to start it in the context of relationship. Jesus started small groups. Because our gospel intrinsically is a relational gospel. It's what we've been talking about for the last month in this series called Family Values. We were meant for community and made for one another. And when we do life with other people, as Jesus' influence grows in our life, it grows in the lives of those around us. I remember the first real small group I was in. I didn't even know it was a small group. I moved from grad school back to Flower Mound. I lived across the street from Marcus with four, three other guys that were all single and trying to find wives. 
And um, I was not. Um, I moved in and it was really cheap. It was a room. I loved it. I was out of my parents' place. I'm a true millennial. You graduate, then you go back home for a little while just to show your parents what they're missing. And then I moved out of that, moved back in, and, and I found a friend and said, hey, let's move in together. They were already living there. And I remember I signed whatever I needed to sign. And that first Thursday rolls around. And they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to hang out with friends. They said, oh, we didn't tell you. Every Thursday night, we stay home. We cancel all the plans. We shut the door because we lived in a cul-de-sac and it was always open. We shut the door and we talk about life together. As Christian men, we're going to follow God together. It's non-negotiable if you want to live here. And I said, how ironclad was that lease? You know, just the idea that I kind of was uncomfortable with it. And I, I remember we go around and they kind of talk about what's going on and they get to me and they said, Charlie, tell me about yourself. Tell me what's going on with you. And so I took five or 10 minutes and I said some things. And I remember what my friend said. He looked at me and he said, that was great. You just said a lot of things, but none of it was really about you. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> you know, this is going to, this is going to get deep. And I remember thinking for the first time in my life, for the next 10 months I was there, because they all got married and left me behind. What's up, Kirk Cameron? Um, I remember over the next 10 months, I really learned what it was like to follow Jesus in a group. And to this day, it defines group life for me. It was transformational and transformative because I got to do life with other people that followed Jesus as well. And so we do small groups at CBC because we see the value in the relational nature of our gospel. That's what Jesus did. He took 12 men and changed the world. And so we, we love small groups at CBC and we love the idea of discipleship. I love what Eugene Peterson writes about it. He said, Christian discipleship is a decision to walk in his ways steadily and firmly, and then finding that the way integrates all of our interests, our passions and gifts, our human needs, and our eternal aspirations. It's the way of life we were created for. That's what we find when we do groups. And so today, today we're going to walk through our definition of discipleship at CBC. And at the end of the day, discipleship is simply what we read in Luke. It's looking more like Jesus every single day. But that's a really broad word, right? If I just said, look more like Jesus tomorrow, you'd be like, where do, what, what does that even mean from the day to day? And so last year, we kind of came up with a roadmap for CBC that we're going to try and follow. And it's our definition. That's an active process to know myself, to know God, and to make him known. And so today, we're going to walk through that definition a little bit. We're going to spend a lot of time with the first one because in the last few weeks, we've spent time on the second and third clauses in that as we've walked through our family values. And in between small times of teaching, there's going to be videos that simply unpack how it's done in the different ministries at Crossroads. Because here's the other part of today. Why we do this today when we could do this through an email, when we could post some more videos on our website, why we do this today is because we value it. And, and, and like it or not, all churches in this country spend the most time, money, resources, and man hours on about two or three or four or five hours on a Sunday morning. This is what we value because this is when our people come together. And so if we really value something, we give it time and space in our most valuable hour or two during the week which is why we take a week or two every year and we serve our community. And it's why we take a week every year and we talk of the value of getting in groups with people and growing his influence in our world. So we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to see different videos from different ministry leaders because it matters. And you, you might know the answers to all the Jeopardy trivia questions about kids, small groups at CBC. So you get to watch it again and smile because it's good for you. And you might know the ins and outs of men's ministry, community groups, because you're in one, but watch it again and it's good for you. But as we keep talking about the value of small groups, hopefully the weight of it impresses upon us and it begins to take hold in new ways this morning, okay? 
Before we get started, we're going to pray it out like we always do at CBC. And we say this every week. We're not going to stop. We come together in this space right now to have conversations of faith. And we have to fight the criticalness of our culture to find a place that we can be contributors to the conversation of faith. And so this morning, the Holy Spirit is doing something. You're not here by accident. You're not watching by accident. God is working in his people through whatever platform you are with us this morning. And we want to acknowledge that and ask what he's trying to do in me, in you, in our community. So we're going to take a second and set aside the criticalness and just pray. And I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to give you some space to say some prayers to yourself and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning. And then, uh, well, pray for me that I might do a good job talking about our groups today. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful for who you are, that we can gather here today, that we can gather here today. How great is that given the last few months? I pray as we talk about small groups that the end goal is not checking boxes of attendance or I'm in seven groups as opposed to your five. I win. The end goal is to follow Jesus. The end goal is to be disciples so that the weight of Jesus's life impresses more on us and grows his influence in our lives, in our families, in our work, in our world. So may that be the end goal today as we see the method through which it's done at CBC. I'd ask you to take a couple seconds and just Pray silently that God might reveal something to you this morning, that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit as we talk about the relational aspect of the gospel. Ask you pray for me, that I might do a good job just communicating the heart and nature of our God as we talk about how we pursue him at CBC. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, there you go. Hey, so this is our definition of discipleship. We're going to walk through it. It's an active process to know myself, to know God, and to make him known. Let's start at the start because it's always a good place to begin. Let's talk about this idea of discipleship or pursuing of Jesus or growing his influence in our life being an active process. And that word active is really interesting and intentional with why we chose it. We, we, we are an either or culture, you know? We don't like the work of nuance because nuance takes work. To be more than one thing at one time that sometimes seems juxtaposed is harder for us to wrap our heads around. We like either or culture because it's easier. I dropped my kid back off at daycare for the first time this week. It's been five months of awesomeness and not awesomeness. And I don't know how I feel yet about it, everybody. Okay? And I'm there. And I, I, you have to pick her up from the stop. I can't go pick her up at her room right now. So I'm waiting in this lobby area and this other dad. And I get my kiddo. And this other kid walks out. And she points and says, friend. And I was like, oh, is that a friend from school? To be fair, I don't really know. Because during this COVID thing, when she stopped going to daycare, she started to call lots of things friends, like a robot vacuum and stuffed animals. So, uh, you know, lots of damage done there. We'll deal with later on, everybody. So she looks at this girl and says, friend. And I talk to the dad. And turns out this girl actually was in her class. And she'd been there. This was on Thursday. So she'd gone back for this the second day. And the dad and I start talking. And I said, yeah, this is our second day back, and it's been since March. And he said, it's kind of bittersweet. I said, it's good, but at the same time, he said, I miss hanging out with my kid during the day. And I work from home, and it's sometimes really beautiful to walk out of your office and have your kid there, and you can play with, and you have picnics with, and lunches, and all, all that stuff. And, and it found this place of not either or, but both and. I was conflicted about the daycareness, and so was this other dad that I want to be around her all the time, but I don't want to be around her all the time. You know what I'm saying? You know how I'm feeling about that? 
This idea that we're not an either or a culture. So when we say an active process, it's important to understand the pursuit of Jesus is not either or as well. It's not all on you and it's not all on God either. It's a verse we looked at a few weeks ago. It's Galatians 3. It's one of my favorite because it punches me in the face because I'm more of a, I need to do more to be better at following Jesus. I'll read it again. He says, you foolish Galatians, the church there, did you receive the spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Although you began with the spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? But then in another book to another church, Paul says this in Philippians, so then friends, just of you has always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even in my absence, continually, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence for the one bringing forth in you both desire and effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. This idea that the pursuit of Jesus in a relationship, discipleship, means that we work and find discipline to look more like Jesus and God God meets us in the middle there and equips and empowers and grows the divine motivation we have to look more like Jesus in the first place. He, reveal, he reveals the beauty of Jesus as we more fully press into the gospel, if you want to put it like that. I love how uh, Dallas Willard put it. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. It's this idea that our pursuit of Jesus isn't just sitting on the couch and saying, God's going to do something today. Our pursuit of Jesus also isn't joining seven groups and being like, I'm going to be the best Christian because I'm in seven groups. It's this mixed idea that the Holy Spirit works in and through us as we pursue Jesus. He wells up in us his influence and we start to look more like our leader our rabbi, our teacher, our God. It's not an either-or proposition. So we say at CBC, discipleship is an active process. That second word there, process, is one of my favorites in this definition. Because I think we're a linear culture. We talk about that often. Meaning we like, give me step one so I can get to step two, so I can get to step three. It's escape room theology. Have you guys ever done an escape room? You go to an escape room and there's all these bits and clues and you're piecing it together and finally you get to step three in the first room and when you get to it, if you do well enough, then the door opens to the second room, you know what I'm talking about? And then you do well in that second room and the door opens to the third room. We think discipleship is like that. If I do this one thing, then God will open room door two and then room door three and then room door four is heaven. Yay, we made it, you know? It's this idea that we have a stepped theology of discipleship when really we are more nuanced than that. And so when we say, know myself, know God, and make him known, those aren't steps. There's no order of operations. Those all happen at the same time. I put together a very bad picture of this when we talked about it a, a little while ago. And it kind of looks like these three circles, and then it all comes together in the middle. And when these three things meet, there you go, see that? When knowing yourself and then knowing God and then making him known meet, that's where discipleship happens. And when you look at it, that's really the journey of the disciples in the first place as they knew more of who they were through Jesus revealing it to them. They saw more of the beauty of Christ and then they made him more known. It's this conglomeration of things that come together that create disciples. We can't say, I'm going to work on God and then I'm going to, now I have the door of evangelism open to me and so now I can step through that. It's a process that we live in and out every single day. It's a daily, it's a daily process that we live into. And it always takes time. And we've talked about it before. I'm going to go there again because I think it's valuable. We have to let the fact that it's a process set in. We have to. 
And I know that we had a whole sermon on the incrementalness of the gospel in an instant culture, but it's important to remember that when God grows us, he normally grows us slowly because over time, as it takes time, the process makes the end goal more beautiful. We love it more and it's more sustainable. I can give you a lot of examples here. I just did a 48-hour sous vide brisket about a month ago with a friend, but most of you right now are saying, what is that? So I'm going to step it down a little bit to a more common experience. Um, just think about having a kid, <laughs> you know? As that kid grows inside of the mother of the wife, you, you learn to love it more by month nine than month one. And so the process of it makes your affections grow for this beautiful thing that's coming. And because you've loved the kid from the cute stages of the newborn to the one, by the time you hit the toddler tantrum twos, you're willing to press through because you've grown that muscle in you. The process is very, very important. But if we start with where we want to end, we miss the process and we don't have grace for ourselves. And so we have to understand that it's an active process. One that God starts in us, hopefully at a very young age and grows in us over time. Whether you start in kidsmen at two or whether you start at 20. So let's take a second right now and just watch a couple videos on what discipleship, what groups look like in kids men and student men at, at CBC. Hey CBC, my name is Kara Martens and I'm the kids director um, here and I wanted to tell you a little bit about small groups. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever even thought about kids ministry as having small groups, but that is actually our goal and our format. And so we give you a little bit of a sneak peek. When kids arrive, um, they start out in small groups um, and it's kind of icebreaker, get to know you as we wait for everybody to get there. Then we actually change this into a large group, similar to what we would do here on Sundays um, with the main Bible teaching and worship. And then we actually transition back to small groups where um, the leaders help our kids process uh, what they just talked about and how it applies to their life outside of here, um, outside of church. And so um, small groups are really, really key for relationships. And just like when you sign up for a group as an adult, um, you would expect there to be a same leader and you would want there to be similar people every week uh, so that you could feel safe and you could feel known because we know that that's how the best life change occurs. And so we want that for our kids too. And so obviously with um, the pandemic and things going on, uh, things aren't necessarily the same as they have been, but I wanted you to hear from me kind of our goals and how we see small groups in its miniature form um, occurring in our ministry. You say, well, Kara, do, do we do that for preschool too? Yeah, all the way up from, you know, our toddlers on up, we actually start intentional um, learning with them. And one of the things I want to leave you with is that kids are concrete learners. And so um, if we want them to believe that God loves them, we can't just tell them. We have to actually show them. And one of the best ways to do that is if there are familiar faces in the same spaces um, that they can count on and that they can believe because this person loves me, I can trust that God also loves me. So we look forward to having your kids back when things resume into our CBC small groups. Hi guys, I'm Nick Robinson. I am the student pastor here. And I just want to say that this idea of you can't do life alone, man, it really applies to the lives of students here at CBC. We are very passionate about making sure that we have safe spaces for students to share what's going on in their lives and to learn about Jesus. And that is why anytime our students get together, we have a time specifically set aside for them to do small groups. So whether it's me teaching and then they go into groups or we do it the other way around, whatever we do together, we find time to break out into small groups. And so for high school, what that looks like is on Wednesday nights, 
we gather up here at CBC and we play games, we hang out, we eat food, and then we split off into gender-specific groups led by some really wonderful adults from our, from our church here at CBC. And then for middle school, we kind of do the same thing. We come up here on Sunday nights from f- at 5 o'clock, and then we hang out, play games, eat food, and then we split off into some groups led by other high school leaders who believe similarly that groups are important. If you want to know more about our student ministry, feel free to send me an email, nick.robinson at crossroadsbible.org, or check out our website at crossroadsbible.org slash students. Thank you, guys. We love groups. From kids all the way up to students, we are growing the influence of Jesus in the context of relationship because it's an active process, meaning whether you start at 2 or 20, you're going to keep going somewhere. But it's an active process, and here's where we're going to spend the most time this morning, to know myself. And let me just start off by saying something. When we say know myself at CBC, it's not some kind of find your inner chakra piece so that you can be okay with how God knew. When we say know yourself at CBC, it begins with our understanding that the gospel begins with you understanding that you need God in the first place. That's why Jesus, when he started teaching his people, He declares that he's coming. He declares that he's a rabbi. And one of his first ever proclamations to his people, he gets up on a hill, and we read it this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. And he sits down and he said, let me tell you about my kingdom. And you know the first thing he says? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of knowing yourself, as Calvin talked about in his institutes, begins with knowing yourself so that we can fully know how beautiful God is, not how beautiful you are. There's a really, really good book, really good book that I encourage you guys to read. It's called The Truth About Us by Brant Hansen, and he talks about this theology. He talks about the theology of knowing yourself, and, and we see this in the scriptures over and over again. One of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 2. It's the calling of Matthew of Levi, right? And Jesus is walking along, and he starts eating dinner with some sinners, some not-so-great people. Pharisees walk by. They see Jesus, and they say, how could you be eating with them? And you probably know the line, but he says, basically, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. And what he meant there was not those who don't think they are sick. And he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. He doesn't mean he hasn't come to call the righteous like there are some. He means he hasn't come to call people that think they're righteous. And in his book, he talks about the, the rise in or the truth of self-justification and how prevalent it is in our society. He basically says that we all think we're better than we are. He quotes a couple studies that I really like. He said there was a um, group of researchers at the University of London. I'm going to quote this. He said they asked, they did a study with people and, and quote, a substantial majority of individuals believes themselves to be morally superior to the average person. This illusion is uniquely strong and prevalent. Most people strongly believe that they're just, virtuous, and moral, moral, yet regard the average person as distinctly less so. It's a truth about all of us over all time. It actually went farther, and he, he cited a study where someone actually interviewed incarcerated people. So you might be saying, Charlie, but, but that's me, and there's a lot of really bad people out there. He interviewed incarcerated people, and I'm going to quote from the professor that did the study. The incarcerated people said that they said that we are um, kinder and more generous than the average person while they've been convicted of committing crimes. It said the results showcase how potent the self-enhancement motive is. It's very important for people to consider themselves good, valued, and esteemed no matter what object circumstances might be. And he goes on to say things like, you know that in the last hundred years, give or take, We've been at war most of the time as a world, and 62 million civilians have died, and 40 million soldiers have died. 
He goes on to quote um, the uh, Institute of Economics for Peace, and he says that right now, out of 162 countries they monitor, do you know how many are not in an armed conflict? 11. 11, right? It's simply to say that we think we're better than we are, but what is the justification for our moral uprightness? It doesn't seem to be history, or it doesn't seem to be current or present reality. When we say know myself, it begins by understanding that I need to know that I need Jesus in the first place. It's the beginning of the gospel. And as we know more and more about Jesus, we see his beauty. There's an Episcopalian priest I was reading this week. It's a long quote. It's a good one. He said, our pride drives us to establish our own righteousness. We strive all our life to see ourselves as keepers of rules we cannot keep, as loyal subject of laws under which we can only be judged by outlaws. Yet so deep is our need to derive our identity from our own self-respected, so profound our conviction that unless we watch our step, the watchbird will take away our name, that we will spend a lifetime trying to do the impossible rather than for even one carefree minute, consent to having it done for us by someone else. The idea that we, from the beginning, have tried to supplant God with ourselves is the truth of our human condition. That's why it says in Romans 1, we traded in the truth of God for a lie. We worship the creator, the creation, instead of the creator. It's a manifestation of pride. We see it from the garden on to today. So when we say know ourselves, it begins for us understanding that we know that we need God. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. One writer said, God is desperately waiting on us to be desperate. When we say know ourselves, we mean literally know how much we need God, how much we need his grace and how not good we are, and that's not changing, no matter what you do. But that is just really half of the story, because the human condition is one that has fallen, broken to sin, you know the narrative probably by now. But that's not the end of the story. If we stopped it there, our gospel would be one of shame and guilt, and not one of glory and restoration. And so it's kind of like, the other day, I, the other day, this is years ago. This is how old I am. I referenced things five years ago as the other day, all right? So the other day, I um, was driving with a friend of mine to, uh, from Chicago to Denver. He'd never seen the mountains. He grew up in Kansas City, right? Which makes Highland Village look like mountainousness. And we were driving and we got just, if you've done it before, you get to these foothills right outside of Denver and his face was pressed up against the glass. And he was like, this is amazing. It's way better than I could have imagined. And I said, what are you looking at? And he said, the mountains. <laughs> I said, those, aren't, those are not mountains yet. And you should have seen his face when we actually got up to the mountains. He couldn't believe it. I say that to say this. From the beginning of time, creation causes us to see the glory of God. Always. I can quote you stats from Colossians 1 that talks about how Jesus holds together the world and that we are spinning at 66,000 miles an hour in a circle right now and are moving at 11,000 miles an hour due east. And if everything stopped, if Jesus stopped, it would come to a crashing halt. I can quote you things that talk about how beautiful this world is because it reflects on how great God is. We can sit here and talk about how about a decade ago they found out that our universe is actually still expanding at an exponential rate that they can't define because we can never come to the end of knowing how good our creator is. We can camp down on that all day long. But the point is that creation shows the majesty of the creator, whether it's the mountains or whether it's us. Because God, when he created, said, I'm going to make the best thing in my own image. That is humanity itself. That is you and me. 
And so when we talk about the beauty of us, we have to understand that we need God, but at the same time, we reflect some of the goodness of God. I was talking to a friend yesterday about it, and you can see like the design, the beautiful design of God's goodness in, in how we're created. So for example, um, came over, met my kid, and I said, you know, hey, do you know that babies don't have kneecaps when they're born? And, and he didn't know. And I didn't know this until I had a kid, and, the, and she's, you know, seven months old, and she's crawling everywhere, and I'm trying to keep up, and it just hurt. It just blatantly hurt. And then somebody told me, yeah, kids don't have kneecaps. That doesn't come to like ages two to six. And I said, well, that explains why they can scuttle across the floor so quickly. How good is God there? That was well done forward thinking, you know? It's the idea that it shows the majesty and the beauty of God. And then you have this verse in Psalms that we know and quote, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Know that full well. And what it means is that even in our broken state, there's parts of us that reflect the goodness of God, the redeemed parts that do. There's a difference between the doctrine of total depravity, if you want to put it in some theological constructs, and utter depravity. Total depravity is going to say that we can do nothing to earn back our way to God, that we can do nothing to fix the chasm that sin created. Utter depravity says that we can do nothing good at all, and it's not what the Bible teaches. Because all good is God's good. Whether he's a Buddhist or whether he's a Mormon or whether fill in the blank there, if he shows compassion to his neighbor, that is reflected because God is compassionate towards us, whether they know it or not. You can't steal that truth from God. And so when we talk about the beauty of humanity, we want to know ourselves first to know that we need God, but we also want to know ourselves because when we press into how we're made and when we press into the creative compassion from which God made us, what we see is a deeper, fuller, richer, more beautiful view of our creator in the first place. And those are the things that we celebrate. And we do it in small groups <laughs> because then we can be known by God and people say, man, God gifted you to do that. Go and do. Isn't God great? At the same time, God did not give you that gift. Let's work on that bad boy right now, you know? As we're becoming more like Jesus, this construct of knowing ourselves, it deepens our understanding of our need for God and deepens our ability to see the creative majesty of God as we reflect his goodness to all creation. We need both. And so we start by talking about how we need God and we need to see God's reflective goodness in all of us. It's why we say in our discipleship definition that part of it is to know ourselves because it reflects how good God is. Let's take a minute and look at how that happens in women's ministry at CBC. Hey guys, my name is Delan Miracle and I am the director of women's ministries. And I wanna tell you about the different types of groups that are gonna be available for women this year. We have four different types of groups, and the first kind is our Learn Together groups. And the focus of a Learning Together group is just that, learning. We want to learn to love God by knowing Him. The commitment level of a Learn Together group is moderate to low, and they meet at different days and nights of the week. So you can look on the website for more information about those. The next type of group is our Practice Together groups. A practice Together groups, of course, do Bible study together, but in addition to that, they're invited to learn about and explore different spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. Um, the use of spiritual disciplines help us to, to grow in action in our love for God. Our next type of group is Follow Together, and these groups are for leaders only. So if you lead in a women's ministry, a small group, or in a home group or community group, or if you lead an evening kids man, you're invited to join a follow together group. It'll be a no commitment, come and share together time. Our last type of group is our moms together group. 
So this is a group of young moms who gather around, build community, learn to help each other through this crazy, difficult young motherhood time. Uh, they share a meal together and just learn to love on each other well. And so we'd love to have you join any of our types of groups this year. For more information about all of them, you can see the CBC website under the Women's Ministry tab. So we hope that you join a Women's Ministry small group this year. So many types of groups. Basically, this is small group buffet day at CBC, everybody. We want people to get in groups. If you haven't picked up on that yet, we're going to keep going. Our definition is to know ourselves, and that culminates in also knowing who God is. And we're going to do this one pretty quickly because we talk about it quite a bit. Um, but, but let me just bring out two things from this. One, when we say no God, there is no limit to how much you can know about God. Whether you started in Jesus' world as a kid or you're just entering the conversation now, you cannot come to the end of knowing about who God is. Because if you could come to the end of knowing a God who's limitless by your limited ability to think, then that God's not worthy of our worship. And we believe that God is worthy of our worship. So, so think about it. I think sometimes we project things into heaven that we want to be true that aren't. Heaven being the place where we ultimately rest with God forever and his influence is fully known and fully felt in our world. I think sometimes we think we're going to get there and have all the answers and know God fully. I, I disagree. I think heaven is going to be the consistent pursuit of our knowledge of God for all eternity. And when it's seen like that, it's really beautiful. It's like, that's why God oftentimes talks about his relationship with us as a bride and a groom or marriage. Because if you have a really healthy marriage, I love doing weddings and seeing weddings as they move forward because they're just beginning in their understanding of what real love looks like as they pursue one another. And hopefully in 60 years, it's better than it was on day six because you just get to explore the depth of what love looks like and the depth of that other person. And if it's good in marriage, how much better will it be for eternity with God that we can never get to the end of because he's so good. And so when we talk about knowing God, it, it literally means understanding that we can't get to the end of the goodness of God as we pursue him. Psalm 147 puts it like this. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So we can't get the end of the knowledge of God. That's good news. Also, good news is just simply understanding. I'll say it in our current context because we try to flatten out the idea of what it means to know, meaning we make the idea of knowing something like test-taking, and it's never what the scripture means when it says to know. Literally, the Hebrew word there has a couple different meanings for it. But one, it means to know intellectually. But two, that word also always carries with it the context of relational knowledge. And we've talked about this before. It's the difference between reading books on parenting and being a parent yourself. It is night and day. When the Bible says no, it means that you've read the books, but it also means that you've lived it out. When the Bible says no, it's not just I go to Bible studies to know about God. It means I go to Bible studies to know about God so that I might live God out in my world. I'm going to have a relational construct to the idea of knowing who God is. That his influence might build in my life and in our world. And we do it through the scriptures, primarily. And we do it through Bible studies and we do it through coming together in spaces and places like this. We do it through conversations in small groups when they shut the door and, and turn, the, the, then turn the, the blinds off and, and they say, you're not leaving till we have this conversation, Charlie. It's going to be good for you. We do it through those constructs. And it's beautiful and it's good. One author I follow says this, if we reduce knowing God in a deep relational sense, knowing things about God, then we're going to find ourselves producing disciples that look like demons who have perfect knowledge of God but refuse to treasure him. 
When pastor says preaching is proclamation, God's word revealed in Jesus, but only when it gets embodied in conversation and a listening ear and a responding tongue does it become gospel. People will only know as much about God as they see you put into practice, in other words. So when we say no God, this is not just let's answer Jesus' jeopardy and move on. And we say that often here because it's so true and it's so easy to slip back into that. It's knowing God, not just in, in intellectually, but incarnationally, as we said a couple weeks ago, that we might know the goodness of God in a relational sense. That's what discipleship is all about. That's what happened with the disciples when Jesus showed up. It's one of my favorite things to do is just to read through a gospel and see the weight of Jesus, his influence grow in their lives and their understanding that relationally grow. Because with that comes more hope. With that comes more hope. <laughs> And so as they understand that Jesus isn't just something to know, but to be known by them relationally, it leads to a deeper and stronger sense of community that we have and hope to follow Jesus in the first place. So we know ourselves, know that we need God, see the beauty of his creative majesty. We know God himself, not just in an intellectual sense, but in an incarnational sense that his influence might grow. Let me tell you something. One of the places I've seen it done most clearly at CBC is through all of our men's groups. We have a great group of men's groups at CBC. And they just keep growing and people call and say, hey, we started a couple more. Good for you. Let me know next time. That'd be really great, right? So let's watch a video just on men's group at CBC. Hey guys, we have community groups at CBC for all different demographics. And that includes men. Because let's face it, sometimes... We need spaces where we just hang out with other men. It's good for us. And we believe you can't do life alone. And that means that we believe that in families and in corporate worship and also just with other guys. So we have men's community groups. And the goal there is a lot like our other groups. You get together and you talk about what's going on in your life and you pray for one another and you, you love one another well and you eat good food and you study the Bible. And it's good to do that just with other guys around you. So I'd encourage you, get in a men's community group. It's good for you. We have them all over the Metroplex, and it's actually been one of the better things in our church in the last few years that keep popping up and starting new groups. So you can check out a list below of places where men's groups meet, and they meet all throughout the week, morning and night, so we can follow Jesus as men together. So check out our groups below and join one today. If you are not getting sick of the phrase, do life alone or community groups today, then we have not done our job, all right? We're going to beat you over the head with it because it's good for you. Hello, small groups at CBC. And we're wrapping up because the last one we're going to talk about is to make him known. And we did a whole bit on this when we did our values on redeemed people can't keep quiet. So you can go back and listen. But, but I think you need to hear the heartbeat of the gospel. The heartbeat of the gospel is found in relationship, and it's when people pass on the hope of Jesus to somebody else. It's when parents raise their kids and say, there's something more than what you see. There's a God at work fixing the brokenness that causes pain in your life and in mine. It's when we pass on the hope that there is more, not just in this life, but in the next one. It's in the grander narrative that says, this world isn't all about me, and that makes it better. It's when we pass on the hope of Jesus from mother to son and father to daughter. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. And it has been from the get-go, from Deuteronomy 6 on, when God said, you're going to write these things on door frames, and every time you walk, talk about the goodness of God. When you get up in the morning, when you go down to bed at night, transfer the hope of Jesus from generation to generation, from friend group to friend group, from person to person, because that's what it means to follow him in community. And that's how hope spreads. It's one of 
my favorite phrases in kind of how I talk about the growth of the church, but I can't believe that Jesus started with 12 people, and in a couple hundred years, it became the prevailing religion in the entire known world. Because it'd be amazing what you could do when you get a couple sold-out people to the hope that is Jesus. And that's what small groups do, is they remind us of the hope of Jesus in small ways and sometimes in big ways as we grow his influence in our world because he's good and because he wants to fix the brokenness that we find ourselves in all the time. It's the story of the gospel that we pass it from one generation to the next. And as we live out following Jesus in the day-to-day, others might see the beauty and the hope of Jesus too. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you've called us to follow you. I'm thankful that we can do with other people. I'm thankful for the grace that you give us and hopefully the grace that we show each other because this is a messy process. I pray as we go from here um, that we see the need for communities. Whether we're in groups now or trying to figure out if a group life is for us, I pray you lead us in the right place and that we see the value in sharing our lives with others as we pursue Christ together. So give us a boldness just to take the next step that we need to. And, and give us an ability to just see how good you are this morning. That you're with us. That looks like right here, right now. That looks like when we read the scripture. That looks like other people that come alongside of us to say that you are loved. As we see the beauty of God today. And pray these things in his name. Amen.